Christmas Eve offering, we said we were going to give uh, some to Park Street, our partner in education, and then some to our long-term missionaries. We collected 24000 for Park Street and 23000 for our long-term missionaries. So all those checks will go out this week, so thank you all so much for your generosity. be a huge blessing to all of those folks. They're going to love it for sure. Appreciate you guys giving. All right, so we got a lot to cover. I'm going to try not to overwhelm you with information this morning. We're looking at Revelation 6. Remember we said chapters 4 and 5 are foundational. Everything that, that follows in Revelation, you've got to look through the lens of chapter 4 and 5. Throne room vision, Father on the throne indicating the sovereignty of God over the events that we're going to see. He's in control of the events that are going to play out in Revelation. The Father's got a scroll in his right hand. That's the destiny of the world. So that's the Father's plan for establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That scroll has got seven seals. It's never been opened. It's never been read. John wonders who can open it. There's nobody who's found worthy. He gets really upset. One of the elders puts his arms around John's shoulder and says, don't worry, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's overcome. He's triumphed and he's worthy. Rather than a lion, John sees a lamb with his throat slit, looking as if he'd been slaughtered. That lamb is Jesus, and he takes the scroll. And then we'll see, beginning today, that he's the one who opens it. He's the only one who's worthy to execute the judgments of God on the world. to overcome. In chapter 5, Jesus shows us he's the lion who triumphed, how? As the lamb who was slain. He triumphs through death, and that provides the model for us. The victories that we win as followers of Jesus, we win through death. First, through the death of Jesus and the benefits that are then made possible to us, and then also through our identification with this death. We talked last week about surrender. It's maybe an easier concept for us to grab onto than dying to self. What does that mean? To surrender your life, not just in general, but in the specific parts to the Lord, even to the point of physical death. And we'll see that as we read through Revelation. The Father expects us to be faithful, even if it costs us our life. But Jesus is this one who's taken the scroll. He's triumphed through his death. He's executing judgments on the world, and they can be disturbing for us. We need to remember, nobody has to undergo any of that judgment. Nobody has to, uh, has to endure the wrath of God. Because of Jesus' death, anyone, everyone has the opportunity to be saved, to be saved from the wrath of God. So the people that are experiencing the, the judgments of God, his wrath on the earth, they're doing so because they've persistently rejected him. So keep all that in mind as we look at chapter 6 of Revelation. I watched as a lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures saying a voice like thunder, come. Remember the four living creatures are those worship leaders in heaven, the closest ones to the throne. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and don't damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. 
Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge your blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when they're shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide from us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For who can, for, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So before we jump into that, I want you to flip back to Matthew 24 if you have a Bible. If not, it'll be on the screen. So last week of Jesus' life, he and the disciples are leaving the temple and they have this exchange. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, Jesus asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So huge statement. That's like saying the White House is going to be destroyed. So the disciples want to know. As, the, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came and they asked him privately, Tell us, when will this happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they pushed some things together. In their mind, when the temple is destroyed, that's the end. That's the last chapter. Jesus is going to return and the end will come. They're seeing all of those things happening about the same time. So Jesus is going to answer them, but he separates those two things. The temple will be destroyed and then he will return and the end will come. But there's thousands of years in between. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Some of these guys were still alive when that happened. Jesus has not yet returned. It's not the end of the age. And so as we're reading through this, you have to kind of keep that in mind. You almost have to read with bifocals, looking close what's happening in 70 AD and looking farther what's happening in the distant future. But I want you thinking about those six seals that we just read and seeing if you see parallels to the signs that Jesus gives. And again, these are signs not just for this answered. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Skip over to verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I see parallels there. To me, 
those first five seals are birth pains. Those are the birth pains, the beginnings of birth pains that Jesus talks about. I believe those first five seals have all been open. And those are realities that we're currently experiencing now. You, you may disagree. Things start getting really squirrely in Revelation starting in chapter 6. For the sake of clarity, I'm just going to tell you what I think. But there are plenty of people who love God and are serious about the Bible who think other things. If what I'm saying doesn't resonate, and I think these things have been operative for at least the last 2,000 years. Some of them even going back farther than that. First seal, the, the, the white horse, this is maybe the one that has the most controversy. Some people see that white horse as the Antichrist. Some people see the white horse as uh, militarism, the, this impulse that nations have to conquer other nations. I see the white horse as the gospel. Jesus says the gospel will first be preached to all the world, and I see that as the white horse. Why? Because every time in Revelation that we see the color white, it's always good. It's always something righteous. It's always something godly. I don't think this is the one exception. That word, we get uh, hung up on the word conqueror and conquest. Those are negative words to us. In Revelation, they're really not. In in, in chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus was called the one who, he was said he was the one who conquered, or he was the one who triumphed. It's the same word. That word appears 17 times in Revelation. If you take out the two in chapter 6 that we're trying to decide about, 13 of the remaining 15 times that word is applied to Jesus or to his followers. It, it more or less is a positive word in Revelation. So again, I see it that way. I see this white horse as the gospel that's being proclaimed uh, across the world uh, in anticipation of Jesus's return. The second horse, the red horse, second seal red horse, is war. That's pretty self-explanatory. You said the third seal is a black horse, famine. Famine does follow war. I see the famine more as a result of drought. That's something in the Old Testament that God does. He, he withholds rain either from the nation of Israel or from other nations as a way of trying to get their attention. So you've got this black horse that's famine, that the, the prices of food are highly inflated, maybe 10 times their normal uh, cost. You've got a guy that works all day to get a denarius, that's a day's wage, and all they can do is buy two pounds of wheat, which feeds just one person. So you work all day, and all you can do is feed yourself. If you've got a family, you've got to buy barley, which is cheaper, and, 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 and your money will stretch a little bit farther. The drought is limited. Olive trees and grapevines have roots that are deeper than wheat and barley. So a drought that affects them would not necessarily affect the oil and the wine, the olive tree and the grapevine. So what I see, and we'll see this throughout these plagues, or throughout these seals, excuse me, is God's sovereignty. He's limiting the, 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 um, the, the, the drought. He's limiting the famine. Jesus says there'll be famine in various places. It's not necessarily worldwide. As we go to the trumpets and then the bowls, these other series of judgments, they get more intense and they get more universal. But this first set of judgments seems to be more limited in scope. Still difficult if you're living in the midst of it, but more limited. And then the, the last of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that probably most famous symbol in Revelation, is the pale horse. It's the fourth seal. It's death. Hades is like the holding tank for the dead, so you die. The thinking was, and you went to Hades awaiting the verdict on your final destination. So everyone who dies goes to Hades, and then God, uh, at the end of time, will send everybody um, one place or the other based on uh, his judgment of them. So Hades is following death. 
and death has the ability to, to, take, um, to, to, to touch a quarter of the world. Don't hear that literally as 25% of people. Hear that again as a, a limiting factor. And you can think of death as pestilence. That's one of the ways that God is working that idea of a pale horse, kind of the word behind that. that that's the picture is, is someone who's almost kind of yellow and cadaverous, they say. Um, this idea of somebody becoming sick and dying through that. So those are the pictures of those first four horsemen, those first four judgments that are released in the world. But the first one, I think, being positive, being the gospel, being preached throughout the world. And the fifth is different. John sees these souls under the altar. And where, where these souls are, that's where the blood of a sacrifice was poured out. So you have the idea that these martyrs, their lives were a sacrifice to God, and they're asking for vindication. They've been killed by the inhabitants of the world, and Revelation, inhabitants of the world, is the term for people who are hostile to God. So it's not everyone who lives on the earth. It's the people who live on the earth who are hostile to God. So they've, the, the, these martyrs are saying, these guys have done us wrong, and God, when are you going to vindicate us? And again, we see the sovereignty of God. He says, not yet. I'm waiting for the full number. And it has not yet, we haven't gotten there yet. We see God knows the name and the number of those who are going to die for him. You see the kind of the, the silliness of trying to peg a date on a calendar. God's not working off of Kronos time, but Kairos time. When the circumstances are right, when the gospel is preached to all the nations, then the end will come. You can't peg that to a date or to a time. It's a circumstance. 3.2 billion people still haven't heard the gospel of 40% of the world. When that happens, that when that Kairos moment happens, then the end will come. When this full number of martyrs, whatever number that is, is complete, then God will move on to the next stage of history. Those are, that's Kairos time, not Kronos time. Again, you can see just the fallacy of trying to pick a date on a calendar. That's not the time that God is working off of. So I would say that's where we're living. We're living after the first five seals have been opened, but before the sixth. The sixth one's different to me. I think the first five have all been opened. You can go back, you can see in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, that's when the gospel begins to be preached to the nations. You can see the first martyr, Stephen, Acts chapter 7 and 8. That's been happening for the past 2,000 years. We all know that there's been war, there's been famine that there's been death going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. None of that is new to us. The Jews had a technical term. It was called birth pains for the time leading up to the end. The chapter before the last chapter was called birth pains. And the thinking was, as we got closer to the last chapter, those birth pains would increase. And those of you who maybe are familiar with uh, birth pains in terms of bearing children... They indicate that birth is near, but you still can't peg the exact time. You may have contractions a day before, two days before, several weeks before. But as you approach the time when the baby's going to come, they do become more intense. And so there is a sense in which that's happening during this time period. And I think that's when we're living. Where are we living during this time of birth pains? And then there's another phase in the end, and it's called the day of the Lord. And that begins with that sixth seal. And that, to me, is different. That's still future. I think the first five have been opened. We're living there. The sixth has not yet been opened. Don't think 24 hours. Think time period. When God would intervene in history, he would punish the wicked. He would redeem the righteous. 
and he would establish his kingdom. So you're Israel, you're this little nation surrounded by hostile nations, and you're waiting on God to do something, to wipe out your enemies, to save you, and then to rule the world through you. That's the day of the Lord. That's a period of history that the Jews were looking forward to. In the New Testament, we've added to that Jesus' return. And we've made that a bit more spiritual and not necessarily having to do with Israel, but that uh, at this day of the Lord, God's going to judge all of the wicked. He's going to redeem all the righteous. He's going to establish his kingdom, and Jesus is going to return. And that day is marked by these cosmic signs. And I don't have a clue what that means. I don't know what it means for the sun to turn black. I don't know what it means for the moon to be red. Back in the late 80s, they said that was a nuclear holocaust. I think that's silly. I don't know what it means. But whatever it is, it will be so significant and so severe that even the rich and the powerful, people who normally are immune from disaster, people who can normally kind of hedge their bets and protect themselves, even they're going to recognize, we got to get out of here. Even they're going to be affected. The kings, the princes, the generals, they go and they, they flee to the caves and they say to the mountains, fall on us. Why? Because the, Jesus has returned and they can't handle his wrath. What is God's wrath? It's his righteous anger poured out on sin. And so what we see here is the response of people who don't know him to his return. It's not a glorious time for them. It's not a day that they've been waiting for. It's a day of dread and terror because they're about to be judged for their sin. And again, it doesn't have to be that way. When we talk about being saved, what are we saved from? We're saved from this. We're saved from the wrath of God. All of us have sinned, and our sin deserves to be judged. We all deserve to experience the wrath of God. But in his grace and in his mercy, the Father sent the Son, and the Son died in our place. He took the wrath that we were due. And so anyone who calls on his name can be saved from his wrath. Those who experience the wrath of God are doing so because they've chosen to reject the grace and the mercy that God has made available to them through Jesus. So what do we do with that? All of that's way above our pay grade. We don't know how to make the sun black. Most of us, we don't, we're, drought, that's over, that's out of our hands, war, all of that's big stuff. And it's easy to get lost, either to get almost paralyzed in fear and trying to figure out reading the newspaper and trying to read the tea leaves and read between the lines and say, where, where are we on the end time scale? Or maybe we just Many of us just kind of push it all aside and go on with our life. What are we supposed to do as people who are living after the opening of the first five seals, before the opening of the sixth? How do we live during the birth pains? Jesus gives us a couple of words in Matthew 24. We're going to hit these briefly. We don't have a ton of time. Therefore, keep watch. That's the first word. Keep watch. That means to pay attention, lest through your own or my own negligence and laziness, we're overtaken by a disaster. That's a big definition. Keep watch. So pay attention. You don't want to fall asleep at the wheel because of your own negligence or laziness. And then you're overtaken by a disaster. In this case, the disaster would be Jesus returning without us being ready. So we want to keep watch because you don't know on what day Jesus will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready. There's another word for us, be ready. So in this case, to be ready is to prepare 
for, someone, for someone's arrival, Jesus' arrival. So to prepare for Jesus' arrival. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect Him. So we want to keep watch, want to pay attention, we want to be ready, we want to be prepared for Jesus' arrival because we don't know when it's happening. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So what does it mean for us to keep watch and be ready? The church in Thessalonia, they were obsessed with Jesus' return. In the end of 2 Thessalonians, Paul says to this church, he says to them, y'all got to go get a job. Apparently, people had quit work, and they were just hanging out on the hill, looking up, waiting on Jesus to come back. Is that what it means to keep watch? That we all just throw a blanket on our roof and look up at the sky? Absolutely not. No. Paul says to them, y'all are missing it completely. Get back to work. What does it mean for us to keep watch and to be ready? It doesn't mean to drop everything and just stare at the sky. It means to be a faithful. This week, read Matthew 25, three parables. And the first two explain what it means to be a faithful and a wise servant. The parable of the ten bridesmaids, your Bible may say the ten virgins, and the parable of the talents. In the parable of the ten bridesmaids, Jesus says there were five who were wise, same word, and there were five who were foolish. What differentiated the wise from the foolish? The amount of oil that they had. So here's the picture. The father of the groom and the groom go to the bride's house. And the father of the groom and the father of the bride negotiate the bride price. It's romantic. When they're done, then the bride and the groom come, go back to the groom's house for the wedding reception and the honeymoon and all of that. You don't know how long that's going to take. How long is that negotiation and getting all those details worked out? So the bridesmaid's job was to have torches. And they would light the way. No headlights, no flashlights, no streetlights. We know it's going to be tonight. We just don't know when it's going to be. Five of the bridesmaids had enough oil to wait. Five of them did not. To be wise is to be prepared to wait for Jesus' return, even if it's over a long period of time. So what does that mean for us? Deep roots. We talk about this all the time. We want to have roots that are deep enough in Jesus that we can wait. Jesus says, at the, at the end, the love of most would, will grow cold. We don't want that to be us. Either through apathy or through distraction or through frustration or through disappointment, that our love grows cold as we wait on Jesus to return. We want a relationship with him that's strong enough, the roots in him that are deep enough that we can stand firm into the end and be saved. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 24. We want to have enough oil. We want to be prepared to wait. There are no shortcuts. This is the, the thing that you learned when you became the first week of your relationship with Jesus. This is prayer, and it's reading the Bible, and it's worship, and it's being in a small community uh, of, of like-minded people, small group. That's the kind of thing that we need to invest in this relationship with Jesus over time. Again, just like in every other relationship you have, there are no shortcuts to getting to know someone deeply. There aren't any. And so we've got to put in the time over time. And for some of us, that's not easy. We're instant gratification kind of people, and it can be difficult to continue to invest in a relationship, especially when you can't see the other person, and sometimes you can't feel the other person, and sometimes you can't hear the other person, and you can begin to wonder, is this, is this worth what I'm putting in? 
I don't know that this is, I almost feel like I'm just talking to myself here. And it can be difficult when there's so many things that are more tangible that are screaming for your attention and your affection. And, but, but again, the, the, there are no shortcuts. Deep roots, relationally, so that we can stand firm into the end. We want to be wise, prepared to wait. Parable of the talents. What does it mean to be faithful? You all remember this story. A master gives money to three of his servants, five talents, two talents, and one talent. And then he's gone, Jesus says, for a long time. And then when he comes back, he wants to see what the servants do with what I gave them. And the guy that has had five comes back and says, hey, your five is now 10. And what the master says to him, what? Well done, good and faithful. There's that word. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. We give you many things come and enter into your master's happiness. He says the same thing to the guy who had two talents, who now has four. The guy who has one, he says he was afraid of the master. He seems lazy to me. He just buried his talent. The master's angry with him, takes it away, and he kicks the guy out. What does it mean to be faithful? It means to be a good steward during the time that we have as we wait on Jesus' return. What are we doing with the things that he's given us, including the time that he's given us? Yes, the money, yes, the resources, yes, the strengths and talents, yes, the opportunities, yes, the relationships. What are we doing? Are we investing what Jesus has given to us in a way that honors him? Are we bearing fruit that will last? Are we doing, uh, what are we doing with what he's given to us during the time when he's quote unquote gone? To be a wise and faithful servant is to one, have a deep enough, strong enough, solid enough relationship that you can wait in the middle of maybe some disappointment, some frustration, some confusion, even some pain. You don't want your love to grow cold. To be a wise and faithful servant is also to be making good use of what God has given you until he returns, using what he's given you in a way that honors him and glorifies him, using what he's given you to further his kingdom and his purposes and not just your own. Again, we're, that, that's, that's what we're doing. We're, we don't have any say-so on when the sun turns black. Like, that's not us. We can't do anything about that. Those, again, God's working on a completely kind of different timetable than us. It's Kairos time. It's at just the right time when the circumstances are lined up. And our responsibility in the midst of that is just to be faithful. It's to be faithful. It's to be ready for his return. And it's to be making good use of the time that he's given us until he returns. And maybe at some point we'll be able to connect the dots and see that the small little things that we did here in Marietta and in Huancayo, Peru. We can, and we'll say, oh, that, that did contribute. That was, part of the, that was part of what he was doing. That did move the ball forward. But most of us, we're not going to be able to see that in the moment. We're just not. And so ours is just to be faithful during the time that God has given us. So this is how I want us to close. That's a lot of information, and it can be a bit hard to get your mind around. So if you close your eyes, I'm going to give you a little summary. And I want you to close your eyes just for the sake of blocking out distractions. Let's see how this kind of settles in your heart. Jesus has the scroll, and he's opened the first five seals already. And those first five seals represent the way God works in the world. 
he saves through the preaching of the gospel. Sometimes his followers die for their faithfulness, but he's fully aware and he will vindicate them. There's war, there's famine, there's death. God even uses those things to get people's attention. We're living during the the birth pains. I don't know if it's the beginning of the birth pains, the middle or the end. I don't know that. But we're in this birth pain stage of history. The next stage, when the sixth seal is opened, that'll be the day of the Lord, a period of time where God acts decisively to right all the wrongs, to punish the wicked, to redeem the righteous, to establish his kingdom, all of those at, at that point who, when Jesus, Jesus is going to return at the end of that day, again, that time period, and at that point it will be too late to repent. And people have to experience his wrath. But until then, God's creating space for us. At the Second Peter, uh, the last chapter, it's another chapter that's concerned about the end times. And Peter says, and this was written, you know, 2,000 years ago. And people are, he says, the scoffers are going to scoff. And they're going to say things like, the world just keeps on going like it always has. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, they're all the same. Where's this return of Jesus that you're talking about? Nothing's changing. And how much more so now, 2,000 years later? And what Peter says is, don't be fooled by that. Don't confuse this delay that we're experiencing Don't think that means God's asleep at the wheel. Don't think that means he's forgot or that he's incapable. Recognize what he's doing is he's creating space out of his kindness so that as many as want to will repent of their sins to avoid the wrath of the Lamb to be saved. And that's that's the first thing. If If we're thinking about what do we do between the fifth seal and the sixth seal, will we keep watch and we get ready? And, and, And step one in that is to be saved. Step one of that is to receive the mercy that God makes available to us. There may be some of you here today who, if you're honest, you'd say, I'm that guy running to the cave. I'm that guy trying to flee when Jesus returns. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus has already experienced the wrath for your sins. He's already experienced God's anger for every sin you have or will commit. You can choose to experience it too, but you don't have to. You can say his sacrifice was enough for you, and you can just ask for mercy. That's simply in your heart right now. God, have mercy on me, and he will. Many of you have made a decision to follow Jesus. You're a son or you're a daughter. Your salvation is secure, and you're maybe kind of wondering, what what about for me? What am I? doing in the midst of this, these birth pains. You want to be a wise and faithful servant. So ask yourself this question. If you have to pick between the two, wise and faithful, which one is the biggest struggle for you today? Which one of those do you wrestle the most with? Is it developing those deep roots relationally? Or is it recognizing the gifts God has given you and using those to his glory? Which one of those is the biggest challenge? I would encourage you then, if you're willing, to 
pray something like this. If you're in that first camp and the idea of being the, the relationship piece is what's hard, you can maybe pray something like this in your own words. God, my desire is to have deep roots. I don't want my love for you to grow cold. I want to stand firm to the end and be saved. But I confess, it's not easy for me. If I'm honest, the Bible's confusing and boring. Half the time I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I don't even know why I'm doing it. You already know everything anyway. I don't understand why we sing these songs. But my desire is to grow deeper. So I pray first, Holy Spirit, that you would put a hunger and a thirst in me for you that can only be satisfied by being in your presence. Would you stir a hunger in me? And then I pray that you'd show me. You'd show me how to pray. I pray you'd show me how to read the Bible. I pray you'd lead me in worship. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would create a hunger in me and then that you would satisfy that hunger. I want roots that are deep. You may be in that other category. You may want to pray something like this. God, I want to bear fruit that lasts. I confess that it's easy for me to lose sight of the fact that all that I have is a gift from you. And I tend to take these things as mine and kind of do what I want with them. I pray that you would forgive me. I want to surrender my money to you, my time to you, my strengths and talents to you. I want to surrender my relationships and opportunities to you and say, God, use them however you want. Use them however you want. And I don't even know what that looks like on a Monday. That's an easy thing to pray here today, but I don't know what that looks like tomorrow morning. And Holy Spirit, I need you to lead me super practically. I need to know what that looks like for me. Not just to acknowledge and recognize that all that I have is a gift from you, but then to use those gifts in a way that honors you and that's in keeping with your agenda and your purposes for this world. Would you help me do that? God, my prayer for everyone in the room, students, men, women. God, I pray, one, that everyone in here, I pray, would avoid your wrath. I pray everyone in here would be saved, that you would speak to every heart in this room in a way that each one of us would understand, that we would hear your invitation to be rescued, that we would recognize the mercy that you've made available to us in Jesus. And then, God, I pray that we would be wise and faithful servants. God, I pray that uh, we would not just kind of uh, give ourselves to the trivialities and the routine of life and lose sight of this great truth that you are returning. And I also pray that we would not get paralyzed or, or even afraid of that and try to read the tea leaves and make connections and try to work out a timetable. God, I pray that we would trust you as the sovereign one. I pray, Jesus, that we would trust you as the only one who's worthy to open the scroll. And I pray that we would stay focused on being wise and faithful servants in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.